The reading is from Exodus 34, verses 4 to 8. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. Shall we pray for Chris? Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray for Chris, our pastor, this morning. We pray for all the, the weight on his heart this morning. We just pray that you would lift that, Lord, that you would just give him the strength and the wisdom and the clarity to bring your word especially to us. We pray that you will reveal everything in your Holy Spirit to us all and that you will draw us all closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 <clears throat> Thank you. Well, probably should have asked Carol to pray for my knee as well. Um, we had um, Kate's middle sister's 40th birthday celebrations this weekend. And um, because she's um, been quite an active, sporty type, uh, we thought it'd be fun to do an assault course. <laughs> an assault is what it was, I tell you. I, I decided, you know, you know what it's like when everyone's watching, you know, the whole family's there, and I'm like, I, I can make that jump. I know I can make that jump. There's this, this big bit of, you know, water, and I'm thinking, I can jump it, no problem. And I could, but my knee uh, didn't thank me for it afterwards, so I've been hobbling since, and it's all swollen up. So, um, yeah, prayers appreciated. But it does tie in a little bit about what we're going to be thinking about this morning, which is that there are, there are consequences to some of our actions, uh, which some of us know better than others. Now today, um, we're going to be finally looking at that last tricky verse. You know the verse that comes up when everyone reads it and goes, ooh, What's that last bit about? Well, we're going to be thinking about that today. Firstly, though, I want to share a story uh, of a young lad called Chris Farmer, who was probably about five or six years old. And um, I remember going into the kitchen where my mum was busy cooking something scrummy, I'm sure. Anyway, um, we could have the first slide up that would be brilliant she's cooking and uh, we've got a gas hob there you go you can see the gas flames there um, doesn't it look beautiful 
It just looks, look at that flame. It's just such a beautiful color. It just entrances you, you know? And that's how I felt when I was five or six. And my mum briefly took the pan off the gas to add something and stir it in and popped it back on the hob. And she did this several times. And as I stood there in the kitchen, I looked at this flame and I thought, it's so pretty. I wonder what it feels like. So I would nudge towards the flame. My mum would turn back, no, stay away, you'll get hurt. So I back off. Then my mum takes the pan off again to add something. And I think, here's my chance. So I step forward again, this time a little closer. And my mum turns just in time to see me and, no, don't do it, Chris. Actually, she probably call me Christopher because that's what I get called when I'm naughty. And uh, anyway, so I then went behind the door, very sneaky, okay, went behind the door, hid for a little bit, kept popping my head round until I saw that she'd taken the pan off the hob. Once again, that beautiful blue flame was exposed and I thought, this is it, this is my chance. If I'm gonna touch it, if I'm gonna really experience how beautiful this thing is, I've gotta do it now. So I literally dashed over and as I put my finger in the flame, what do you think happened? <laughs> and my mum turns around and what does she do? I told you not to touch the flame. I told you not to touch it. What did I say? Anyway, so she grabs my hand, she puts it under the cold water, and then she gives me a cuddle as I cry and say, oh, it hurts. And she's looking at me going, oh. <laughs> yes, it hurts. It's a story as old as time. We may laugh at the story, but it does have a darker side to it too, namely that we all have a propensity to do stuff that we know we shouldn't do. As I said, it's a story as old as time. Let's think back to the creation story in Genesis. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're enjoying God's creation and one another, and they're walking in the garden with God. They're in close relationship. It's harmonious. It is perfection. And God says to them, you're free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now we know what happens next in the story. The slippery serpent comes in and says to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Can you see how subtle this is? Subtly sowing a seed of doubt. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, from, uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the, uh, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. At this point, I'm like, yes, Eve holding to the truth, but the serpent was crafty and persistent. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. Can you see how subtle the serpent is? He's twisting the truth. He's undermining God's authority and character. He's implying that God's lying and that she can't trust God, that he's a kill joy and that she can take control, be God. So Eve has a decision to make, trust God, have faith that he's telling the truth and actually has her best at heart or trust the snake and her own judgment. And who does Eve trust? Exactly, exactly. Today, the words wickedness, rebellion, and sin are used in the verse, which God forgives. Now, wickedness is kind of like the term for anything that is essentially wrong, not good. So it would be um, something huge and mammoth, like as we're thinking about Remembrance Sunday, some of the things that lead to war, things that people do to other people, uh, abuse and so forth. But it can also be cutting someone up on the road with your car deliberately. It's vast, it kind of covers everything, wickedness. And then rebellion, well that's kind of like a legal term in this sense. It means you know the law, you know what's right to do, but you deliberately choose to break it. Now, I'm sure nobody has ever rebelled in uh, this church here before. But, um, and for those of you thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not that bad. Well, let me ask you a question. When it comes to rebellion, how are you with the speed limit? There we go. Right, let's move on to sin. Now, sin um, is actually an archery term. It means missing the target. But it also just means messing up, not getting it right. And these are the three words that are used in today's passage, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And it kind of covers all the stuff that is not so great about humanity. And we're going to use the word sin to kind of cover that. Otherwise, it's three words every time. But I'm going to just use sin. But you see, sin at its root, it's not trusting God. That's what it is at its root. That's what we see in the garden. When I touched the flame, you could say I got burnt because I was young and I didn't know any better. Or because I was tempted and had little self-control. But really, when it boils down to it, I got burnt because I didn't follow my mum's instruction. And sadly, that wasn't an isolated incident. <laughs> Today, we might put the onus on the parent. Well, it wasn't the child's fault. And some of you might have been thinking this as you heard the story. The mum shouldn't have been cooking with an open flame. She should have turned it off. She should have known better, etc., etc., etc. But do you know what this does? It denies the will of the child. I had a will and I chose to touch the flame. No one forced me. My mum wasn't encouraging me to touch it. I chose to touch it. 
we tend um, to be um, not so great at owning our sin. We often push it away. We deny that we're sinful, that we've done anything wrong. We shift the blame. Notice what happens in the creation story once Adam and Eve sin. They hide. They hide. It's the complete opposite to what they were experiencing before, where they're out in the open, free, enjoying everything. They hear God coming, and instead of walking with him, embracing him, they hide. And then when God finally confronts them, well, do you remember what happens? (laughs) Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent, and on and on and on it goes. It would seem that when it comes to sin, many of us, particularly today, deny it, calling it a hangover from a religious worldview we've moved on from. Or we do the opposite. We embrace it proudly and wear it as a badge of honour. I'll do what I want, thank you very much. No one can tell me what to do. I know what's best for me. Ever heard that? (laughs) But the Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's best for our lives. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And it makes it clear that just like eating that fruit... The consequence of sin is ultimately death. Sin is destructive to us and to those around us. And it has a habit, as I've said before, of recoiling on the sinner. It robs us, it kills, it destroys both individuals, families, communities, and nations. Don't believe me? Turn the news on. What do you see? We don't like to talk about sin. We'd rather sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there. But as I've said before, when we do this, all we create is a tripping hazard. We need to acknowledge it. We need to own it. And we need to take it much more seriously than we do Now, like my mum warning me multiple times, I might add, not to touch the flame, God is a good parent who instructs, who intervenes and challenges our sin. Not because he wants and likes to punish us, but because he wants the best for us. I don't know how many of you know of the singer, the late singer, should I add, Amy Winehouse. Some of you may have heard of her music. Some of you may have enjoyed watching her. She was very talented, beautiful woman, and um, she died of alcohol poisoning at the age of 27. And in a documentary called Amy, She speaks about her upbringing and she says, I wish my mum was stricter on me. She just let me do what I wanted. 
Proverbs 3 says, My child, do not make light of Yahweh's discipline, the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because Yahweh disciplines those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. See, a good parent, as Amy acknowledged, doesn't turn a blind eye to sin, to those things that are causing damage to their children or to others. They don't. They don't turn a blind eye. They do all they can to intervene and encourage them on a better path. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. But as we've looked at Exodus 34, I hope that you have come to see how loving and faithful and good God, Yahweh, is. That he is a good parent that wants the best for you. And as we look at the last verse of God's self-disclosure, Exodus 34, verse 7, we are assured that he maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. As I've said throughout this series, his default towards you is mercy. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Be nice to just end it there. Boom. But it says, yet, yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What's up with this last bit, eh? (laughs) This is an interesting bit, isn't it? If God is gracious and compassionate, why would he seemingly, according to this verse, take it out on the children for the sin of the parents? Well, let's have a look at some other verses. Later on, after this encounter with God, Moses instructs the people in Deuteronomy 24:16 that parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Hmm. Much later on, after this, the prophet Jeremiah, drawing on Exodus 34, says, You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. You reward each person according to their conduct as their deeds deserve. So as I've looked at that, I'm thinking, well, maybe God isn't literally saying that if I don't pay my bills, he's going to take it out on my three children. What he's saying is quite deep and layered. And I think there's a number of layers to this. I think the first and foremost, the the most obvious one, is that if I sin 
it will have consequences, not only for me, but to those closest to me. And because I'm a father, it will have consequences for my children. If I decide to gamble all my money away and therefore can't pay my mortgage, my bills, my taxes, then eventually everything I own, including my house, will be taken away from me. But it's not just me that becomes homeless, is it? It's my children too. Or say Kate and I decide to get a divorce. We're not planning on that, by the way. You'd be glad to hear. But let's just say we were. However amicable that separation may be, there will be repercussions for the children. And having been a child of two divorces, I know that full well, as some of you may do too. Many of you may have grown up in a stable and reasonably functional family. I don't think any family is actually fully functional. I really don't, (laughs) because we're people. But many of you may have experienced the exact opposite. You may have experienced a really dysfunctional upbringing. And so you know what I'm talking about. Sin has a knock-on effect. And this isn't a judgment on you if you're a parent. Parenting is not easy. (laughs) And I think that many of us can easily walk around with a false guilt about our ability to parent. Hands up if you've ever felt guilty as a parent that you're not doing it good enough. Just a few of you then. I always say we're trying our best, but we don't always get it right. Why? Because we're human. We all fall short. Kate and I have entered into the teenage phase at the moment with our kids. Well, some of our kids anyway. And we're uh, being thoroughly tested, should we say. And my nostrils, if you may remember this, they have definitely grown significantly in recent months. But you see, when in our anger or disobedience we deliberately sin, it has a knock-on effect, not only for us, but for those around us. The next layer to unpacking this verse is that certain sins can run in the family. A bit like DNA, one generation's sin can often become the next generation's sin. If there's a history of deceit, abuse, or addiction in the family, then this can easily become part of the family name, passed down from one generation to the next. You've heard of the expression, monkey see, monkey do? Yeah, and I think when children are in such dysfunctional families, it can lead to them thinking as they grow up that this is normal, this is just normal behavior. And then they repeat the mistakes of their parents. They develop unhealthy coping mechanisms. They endure hardship 
mentally, physically, emotionally. Now, some of us may have experienced this. Some of us may be dealing with this still. A number of friends of mine who have either fostered or adopted children have seen this with the children that they've taken in. And it's tragic and it's messy and it's heartbreaking. But when you're a parent, a good parent, you are committed and you try your best to love them through it. But sin is seriously damaging to us and all those around us. And God takes sin seriously, way more seriously than we do. And because he loves us and because he's committed to us, as we heard last week, he continues to deal with sin in each and every generation until it is gone. And I want you to hear this next bit because I think it's important. God loves you and he receives you as you are right now. And you may have heard that a number of times from the pulpit that God loves you, he receives you as you are, and that is true, and I would say a huge amen to that. But you need to hear this next part. He loves you so much that he will not leave you as you are. He is committed to you, to the best version of you, the the, the person he sees when he looks at you, the person he has created and formed and has a plan for, and he is committed to seeing that to fruition. When we look closer at Exodus 34, verse 7, we find a surprising twist. In the original Hebrew, it doesn't have the word generation. It was added to help us make sense of a Hebrew idiom. So it could say, maintaining love to thousands of generations and he punishes the children to the third and fourth generation. Or more literally, it could say, maintains love to thousands and he punishes the children to the third and the fourth. But can you see it? Can you see the imbalance? If we can have the next slide up, please. Love for thousands of generations, punishment for the third and fourth generation. If we were to have a scale of God's mercy and judgment, this is probably what it would look like. Maintaining love to thousands having mercy, punishing the children to the third and fourth. May that bring you hope this morning that God's baseline towards you is mercy. But sin has consequences. We know that full well. We may have experienced this in our families. We see the repercussions in society and between nations. 
and sin has to be dealt with. It can't be left unchecked. Why? Because it gets worse if it's not. There's a tension here between God's mercy and his justice. Because God does not leave sin unpunished. In ancient Israel, the way around this, as many of you know, was through animal sacrifice. You would take your best animal to the temple, maybe a lamb, an animal without blemish, and you would offer that as a sacrifice for your sin. You would lay your hand on the animal's head and the priest would slit the throat and burn it on the altar. You sin, the poor lamb dies. Good for you, not so good for the lamb. But this was an expression of God's mercy. The punishment you deserve is taken by the lamb. It takes your place so you can live on in God's favour. And for a little while at least, anyway, until you have to do it again to atone for the next lot of sins that you've accumulated. But this sacrificial system was all pointing forward to a greater one, a once-for-all sacrifice. Do you remember what John the Baptist declared when he saw Jesus? Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we could have the next slide, please. On the cross, Jesus, God's own son, willingly laid down his life for us. He sacrificed himself for us. He took our place. He was without sin, but he took our sin, the sin of humanity, your sin, my sin, onto himself and took the ultimate consequence that sin brings death. Through Jesus' sacrificial death, we finally see the answer to the ancient dilemma and tension between God's mercy and justice. Mercy because our wickedness, rebellion and sin is truly forgiven. Justice because he hasn't left sin unpunished. John Mark Comer in his book says, the reconciliation of God's mercy and justice in the death of Jesus is the ultimate expression of Yahweh's character. And it was done out of love for us. God so loves you that he gave what was most precious to him. And Jesus wasn't forced to do this. It wasn't the father saying, you're going to do this whether you like it or not. Jesus chose to lay his life down. He was one with the father. When you saw Jesus, you saw God, 
the Father, Yahweh's character. God made flesh. He chose to lay his life down for us. This is love, John says, and we mentioned John last week, the disciple, the apostle. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loves you and receives you as you are right now. But he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He is fully committed to you and wants to love the hell out of you. That's what he wants to do because he loves you. He's not going to turn a blind eye to your sin because like a good parent, he disciplines those he loves. You see, sin is dehumanizing. But he wants to bring you fullness of life. And we can receive this through faith in Jesus. This is the good news. But you can't have good news if you haven't heard the bad news. You can't be saved if you're not needing saving. But this is the good news. We're called to repent and believe it. Now, repent is another word we don't particularly like in this day and age. But repent simply means to turn around. And we all do it, don't we? Maybe we're going to say that thing we really want to say. And we manage to get a moment of clarity where we go, actually, I'm not going to say that. And we turn around and we don't say it. Repent means turn. And do you remember the story of the prodigal son that we heard a few weeks ago? He was certainly not repentant when he left his father's house, was he, about what he was doing. He took the money. He essentially said, I want your dad, dad. I want my money. I want my inheritance now. And he went and he spent it in wild living. And it wasn't until he was in the mud and the mire, feeding pigs, wanting their food because he was so hungry, that he realized what he had given up, what he had lost. What, he realized the state he was in. And it was at that moment, that moment where he thought, do you know what? What am I doing? What am I doing? There's plenty of food in my father's house. Even the servants eat better than I am right now. He loves them more than, more than what I'm experiencing right now. What am I doing here? I've got to go back. And he does. And what does God do? The father do. When he sees him, he embraces him. He embraces him. He didn't even give him time to finish his repentant speech. He just runs and he embraces him. And that scale that we saw early where justice trumps mercy, sorry, justice, tr mercy trumps justice, that was a faux pas. Mercy trumps justice every time because God is so 
gracious. But we have to return to him. We do have to actually acknowledge that we need him. I don't know about you, but like when we talk about sin, we can often feel like we're being judged. Like, oh, that's a sinner there. They're a sinner. Oh, do you know what they do? Do you know what they did? And to say that everyone has sinned and fallen short feels a little bit too much in this day and age. Well, how dare you say that? But you know what? For me, I find it incredibly freeing because I know I don't get it all right all the time. And it's nice to know that I'm not alone in that. But more than that, it's nice to know, it's great to know that God receives me in my mess and that he welcomes me when I return to him and acknowledge, yeah, I'm a mess. I need you. And you know, I've gotten to know this reality of God so much more becoming a parent. I've got so much more uh, appreciation for my mum <laughs> since I've become a parent. I would say to my mum, oh, my children. Well, I said this to them the other day. I keep saying the same thing. I said, don't do that because this. And, and they just do it anyway. Oh. And she's just like, yeah. Mm, yep. Frustrating, isn't it? I'm like, oh, you have no idea. And then she looks at me. Really? I have no idea? Yeah. But God is a good parent. And he will not stand aside and just let you ruin your life. He intervenes. He disciplines because he loves you. Not because he's an angry God. He's just looking at you to fail so he can smite you. He does it because he loves you. He wants you to have better than what you're living. Jesus said, the thief comes only to rob, kill, and destroy. That's what sin does. But I have come, said Jesus, that you may have life and life in all its fullness. Is that what you want today? Yeah? Yeah. Me too. What do you have to do to receive it? Believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Return to him and you will be saved. You will be welcomed home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just want to thank you for your mercy. We really just want to thank you for who you are. You are compassionate and gracious. You're slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
and we thank you that though we mess up, though we get it wrong, though sometimes even when we're trying to do what's right, we get it wrong, we acknowledge we also deliberately disobey you at times. Sometimes we think we know best. We touch the flame. We eat the apple. And Lord, we, we have experienced the consequences of that. But we thank you that you are a good, good father. And like a loving parent to a child, you do not turn a blind eye, but you discipline us. You seek to bring us back. And so I pray today for each and every one of us, Lord, that by your spirit you would work in our hearts and you'd help us to repent, to turn back to you and to believe the good news that you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life life in all its fullness and that's what we want today Lord so have mercy on us and receive us and transform us and don't give up on us Lord we need you